I remember on my second day of chemo, I wore my football gear. So I wore my, all my Glenelg, my Glenelg playing kit with my football boots, bought a football in and sat, sat in the seat for five and a half hours just in footy gear. Um, yeah, I just try to make it as, 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 as positive as possible. Hello and welcome to Wait, You What? It's the podcast where I say that every episode. I talk to someone who has a surprising story of something they've struggled through, something they've lived through, something they can share their experience, perspective and knowledge on. Thank you so much for your reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's crazy to see them coming through and it's so helpful because that's how I get this podcast out there is by word of mouth and you guys giving me reviews that boost me in some kind of algorithm or something. So thank you again. On today's episode, we're talking to Rolla Kelly Mansell. He's the Tasmanian Aboriginal of the Year for 2020, and for good reason. Not only is he extremely accomplished, as you'll hear, but he's been dished more than his share of challenges in his life, all of which he has approached with a survivor's mentality. You're going to be hearing about how Rolla became a state league football player, worked through his depression, started a charity, and how writing himself a letter got him through his own cancer treatment. And just a word that this episode does mention suicide. My name is Rala Kelly Mansell. I'm a Tulumpunga, Cooper and Yara, Pakana man from Lutsuwita, which is a beautiful, sunny, sunny Tasmania. I play football. I make music. I'm an MC. I'm the founder of a mental health charity. Um, I'm a cancer survivor and I'm a presenter and content maker. They say that Tasmania has some of the cleanest air in the world, and this was especially true for where Rolla grew up. It was remote, and he was surrounded by wildlife. My dad runs a wildlife sanctuary, has done for about 30 years. I grew up pretty much on the sanctuary. And yeah, it's just very hilly and green, nice river run through there, and there's just a lot of of beautiful animals from from, um, wallabies and Tassie devils to wombats, beautiful birds, white goshawks. Westside eagles, masked owls, yeah, you, you name it. But Rolla wasn't born on the sanctuary. He was actually born in the bush. Um, literally in the bush, like not in a hospital. Um, just probably about 10 kilometres from where the sanctuary is, under a place called, uh, the English term's called um, Mount Roland, but the area is called Tulumpunga, the Aboriginal name, which means red ochre, in this like little um, bush shack, I'd call it, um, where it was literally just, you drive off this main road down this kind of dirt road for about a kilometre and then off the dirt road you then go into like a literally like off-beaten track in through scrub and there's this like just this shack and just literally in the, in the middle of the bush. Um, and it was like, yeah, no, no technology, um, drop bunny um, and just, yeah, it was, it was pretty pretty unique. And this shack has a lot of meaning to Rolla. My uncle was at my, at my birth and he, he helped give me my identity, um, Rolla. Rulla's an Aboriginal name. In Palawakani, which is our language back home in Tassie, it means strong. Um, but the story of Rulla is the story of the three hours, which is um, uh, Rulla, Duka and Wabana, and my cousins, one of them is Duka. And, um, yeah, it's the story of the three hours, and, and Rulla is the protector. Um, so my totem is the master owl, so that's why I've got that tattooed on my chest. And the master owl is the largest owl of all the owl family. Rulla's tattoo of the owl, it spans from the top of each shoulder to down around his diaphragm. It's big, and it looks proud. Wings spread mid-flight. He 
also has a tattoo of the Aboriginal flag on his right hand. My mum my is one of the coolest people I know. I know that's a biased opinion, but um, I think uh, when you when anyone sits and has a chat with her and, and listens to some of the you know some of the things she's been able to do in her life, she was born on um, Flinders Island, um, which are islands in the Bass Strait. Um, that's where our family lineage comes from. Our Aboriginal on my Aboriginal side. My recollection of mum growing up was she's always taking me to like community events and 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 really chucking me into the doing cultural things and and just really chucking me into being in the part of the community. I guess mum's reputation is very staunch, um, obviously activist, but also going against the trends. You know, she she tends to do what's what's right and not what people are going to enjoy the most. When Rolla chats to his mum, she tells him stories about some of the things she's done. She went to Libya and met Gaddafi, which is like crazy. Um, she got to meet um, at that time Stokely Carmichael, which is one of, uh, he is one of the Black Panther founders or one of the first Black Panthers. So I guess that's mum's legacy with, even with me. I, I wasn't born, on, I, wasn't, I was born with an Ab- Aboriginal birth certificate. Um, and that was her way of saying F you to, to uh, the Commonwealth here. And um, yeah, it, like I was one of the one of the first ever to ever happen, and she tells again this good story of um, at the time I think uh, news got wind of it and they wanted to do a story on it and they're going to come out to the to the bush house, the back house, and, and they're about to do it and then Mum said no because she was she was growing some marijuana crops out the back. So <laughs> I don't know if I can tell that, but I just did. But um, yeah, it wasn't long before Rulla came across something called a football. He was a teenager, probably when I was about twelve or thirteen. I played basketball before I played football and I was, I was probably a better basketballer at the time. And for whatever reason, I just fell in love with football and was so intrigued by it and just used to kick the football with my brother in the backyard or with my dad. And I, was, I don't know if I got good at it quick, but I got good enough to make me want to keep playing it. The fact that Rollo was from a small town made him even more hungry to be good at football. Being from the country, we never really had any kind of players go very far into the big leagues. I think we had one uh, one or two, one within my time growing up. Um, but other than that, like a lot of players that were playing AFL came from Tasmania, either come from like different parts of the state. So I don't know, I always saw that as a bit of like a challenge as well. Like I want to try and um, say, oh, you know, I came from this little place in Tassie, Deloraine, Mole Creek. And, um, although I didn't get... To the, to the top, top league, I got, got as close as you can get. And, um, you know, who knows if some things went, went my way in some other, other situations, maybe, maybe I would have got there. Over the next few years, everything was seemingly going really well for Rolla. He was playing great footy at a state level. He was moving around Australia doing what he loved. People thought he was living the dream, but what Rolla didn't let on was that his mental health was suffering. He knew he wasn't feeling good, but he didn't know why or what it meant. Yeah, well, I think a lot of the time when people go through it for the first time, particularly particularly when you're younger, you don't know. Um, you don't know what it is. You're kind of just trying to make sense of, of everything. I mean, as we've progressed, it's, it's definitely more, there's more things around us to, to know what it is. But, you know, like 10, 15 years ago when I was feeling like, first started feeling like crap, I had no idea, you know. Um, I think I first started knowing that was, I probably was going through um, some depression when I was having suicidal thoughts. Um, but I never did anything about it. Um, I don't know. I just 
I just kind of got on with life and didn't think much of it, which is weird when I look, even just saying it now. But, um, you know, like I, I would just, yeah, I'd often think about times of not wanting to be here and um, and that they would, um, yeah, they would fill in my brain sometimes. And a lot of it come from just like not really having your feet firmly on the ground, people not really understanding maybe who you are or, you know, your background and what you've, what you've seen when you're growing up, you know, I've, as beautiful as my upbringing was, I saw some things that, that I wouldn't want anyone to ever see. You know? And, yeah, well, I, I guess I come from a, a pretty tough little family, which, which has always had a bit of a chip on their shoulder, you know. And, but it really hit ahead. Um, I ended up in hospital over attempted suicide, and that was probably that was, that was the turning point for me where I said, oh, I'm going to make a difference. It kind of scared me enough to go, no, like you've, you've, got, you've got one opportunity at this, you know. And it was kind of my big boy moment, I guess. Um, and, I, and I put my big boy pants on after I like, like to say. And I did sobriety for 10 months, which was, um, which was massive for me. And sure and behold, that's when a lot of good things started happening in my life. So I think that that happening kind of just kicked me in the gear for whatever reason. And um, I try to be a bit more self-reliant and, and just, I remember, um, yeah, just, just really putting my, eggs into this basket of working hard and I haven't stopped working hard ever since that moment. Rella started opening up about his mental health more. He started having conversations about it and posting on social media about his own struggles. No matter who you are and no matter where you're from and which walk of life you know you come from, you will go through a shit space in your life. Like it's just people want to kind of skate over it and use statistics like one in five or one in three if you're Aboriginal and this, that and the other. But my personal opinion is it's bullshit and it kind of makes people believe that if one in five will go through it, that four and five won't. And it's really damaging to put in people's minds that they might not go through challenging times mentally and emotionally and socially. And um, I wish I knew that then because at the time I didn't and I, I usually shrug it off. It was around this time that Rollo was also coaching teenagers at football. This is when he met someone called Isaac Maxi Walters. He's a he's a young a young boy that grew up around my way. Again, from the same same town, which um, which I I guess grew up from. Mole Creek was about two hundred people, and he's actually the nephew of my first football coach. Rollo and Maxi clicked quickly. They bonded over Rollo knowing Maxi's uncle, and they became pretty close. Maxi was just sixteen, and he loved the game of football. Yeah, he was just a really really nice young kid you know like coaching him he was he was a um someone that yeah you just enjoy coaching he he's really competitive and you always want to get better and and the first game of the year i'll never forget it i played him back and apparently traditionally he was a forward and i remember someone walked past me caught a time and said you've got to play maxi back oh you're gonna play him forward sorry and i said no no i'm just gonna leave him I'm just gonna leave him there i reckon he's right i reckon he's gonna come good Sure and behold, he ended up getting best on ground and um, and within three or four weeks, he was debuting playing his first senior game. He, he would change from being this like cheeky, smiley, like really nice um, young boy to then really just flipping the switch and getting white line fever. To most people, Maxie was a bouncy, football-loving young kid. But what a lot of people didn't know is that Maxie was going through a lot of mental health struggles. And um, yeah, he, he unfortunately passed away at the age of 16. Maxie had taken his own life. It just shook everyone as, as, as you know, deaths do. But, um, you know, 
at that age with the world and you know ahead of you, um, I guess that's where it hits a little bit hit, hit more because um, yeah, he was just so young and he just had so much life to live. Roller had done a post on social media talking about his own mental health a few days before this happened. Later on, after Maxie's death, Maxie's mum told Roller that she had seen Roller's post and meant to reach out to him about Maxie. I think it was the, the first time someone passing away where I felt like I could have done something. You know, like lost my uncle to suicide when, when I was 12, 13, but I was too young to even really know what was going on. And, you know, I'd lost another uncle to homelessness. Um, but again, I was too young to, to I guess, really know. Um, I think with, with Isaac was the, was the first time something like that had happened where I, at that moment I was like, fuck, like, you, you could, you know, you could have potentially done something because you, you were within arm reach of, of this person for 12 months um, as a coach. And, and you just wonder if sometimes and, really kind of like a dagger sticking in was like this could have been preventable potentially and 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 you yourself feeling that, that you could have played a part in that being preventable somewhere throughout his process of grieving roller had an idea it formed in, in my kitchen in that grieving process and it was the idea about wanting to make a difference and, and help the situation and that's as simple as that what it what it stemmed from and um, and there were so many posts going through social media at the time, and I remember his brother put up a post, Joe put up a post saying, saying something about his cricket and how to continue to keep making runs or something, and, and it just stuck in my mind, and, and then I put the, the words make runs maxi together, and it just made sense um, because he was a really good cricketer. I just use the analogy, it's like in life, you've got to keep making runs, you know, like you just got to keep trying to, you know, stay at the crease and, and not get out, you know. So with help from Maxie's family, Rolla started a charity in Maxie's name and called it Make Runs Maxie. It's a non-for-profit um, mental health charity, which is, I guess, designed to um, give people a sense of purpose and fulfilment, but also decrease negative consequences surrounding mental health, um, like depression and suicide and anxiety. Yeah, it just was something that I thought could help help his family and, and, and make sure he he was never forgotten. Just when you thought you'd heard all the twists and turns of Rolla's story, one night in 2020, he got home from football training. I got out of the showers, got jumped in bed, and just by chance, I just laid on my side, and for whatever reason, it just sounds uncomfortable, but I um, felt my testicle was very hard, like abnormally hard. And I remember like tapping it, and it was like hitting like a table or like a rock. And I was just like, fuck, that's not, that's definitely not normal. So, I jumped on Dr. Google, which is like the first thing you shouldn't do. And, um, but in hindsight, it, it scared the crap out of me. And I was like, surely it, could, like, it couldn't be that. So I thought, you know what? It's enough that I'm going to do something about it in the morning. So in the morning, I called the doctor and I got in there that day um, by chance. And yeah, it took about a two and a half week process to find out, which was hard because I, I couldn't, couldn't tell anyone because I didn't know if it was or wasn't, but you know, I'll, I'll never forget it. I, I literally um, went into Adelaide Royal 
here in, in Adelaide. And I kind of knew by the ultrasound because he had a shit poker face. Went in there to the oncologist and he said, um, said yeah, mate, you've, you've most likely got testicular cancer. And initially I was just like a little a little tear come come down my face and I was just I was pretty accepting of it because I'd mentally prepared. But when they actually say it, it kind of hits you like a ton of bricks. He walked around for a few weeks after hearing the news, feeling like he was in a daze. And then he got another call from the hospital. You know, testicular cancer is one of the most curable cancers after men. It's one of the most common as well, but uh, and most often testicular cancer with males they get it's benign, which means the tumor hasn't spread and they just go and you get you go and get it taken out and have maybe just a little hit of chemo and happy days. But mine had spread and they didn't they didn't know that at, at the start um, and I had to wait to get my CT scan to to tell me and um, yeah it spread all through my body and. But to my aorta, which is my artery to your heart. They told Rollo that he had T2 testicular embryonal cancer, one of the most aggressive forms of testicular cancer that you can get. And, yeah, they called me using bloody hospital language and I didn't know what was going on. So I was just like, I didn't know what that meant, but uh, it meant that I had to go through nine weeks of intense chemo, which was, yeah, which was at the middle of, uh, sorry, it was at the beginning of the pandemic when it, when it happened and when we went into lockdown, so... Um, yeah, I was away from my family. I couldn't come over or anything because of the borders. This next part is where Rollo's story could have gone a lot different. He could have felt downtrodden. He could have said, why me? He could have given up mentally. But instead, Rollo decided to treat cancer like he was on the football field. I treated it like a um, bit like Woody, to be honest. Once I got over my really scared phase of like, am I going to die? You know, this, that and the other. Um I reached this place of acceptance um, and I think once you, re- you reach that, it's like, okay, uh, I've understood it, I understand what it is, I've accepted it, now it's time to embrace it and that's the way I treated it. So I, I just treated it like a footy match and I just thought, all right, if I'm, I'm going to go through this, I'm going to do it the best that I possibly can and uh, I literally, that's, that was my mentality and, um, yeah, without – you know, without being um, biased, I feel like I'm not chemo for six, to be honest. And that was the mentality that I had because once you find out that you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna live, it's just gonna be a shit time. You know, that that's all you can really do. You're like, you can't waste your energy on, on what ifs. You know, you can only do what you can control. And um, that was my mentality going into it. And I, I made little rules and I did little things throughout it to to keep me in check. I, I wrote uh, a letter to myself. Um, and I called it Notes of Self, and I read it every morning, and um, I still read it actually every now and then. I told my nurses if I ever wasn't smiling that they could tell me off, um, because yeah, you know, you're you're in this. I'm in a chair for five and a half hours every day, and there's people in there that are just like, understandably, they're just like down, you know, exhausted, no energy, but really sad faces and things. And when I first went in there. I remember walking through and walking out like, um, I'm not going to be like that. Like, these these nurses are coming every day. The least I can do is give them a little bit of, you know, like a bit of laughter or whatnot. So, yeah, the rule was if I wasn't smiling, they allowed to tell me off. Um, when I was waiting to go in, I wasn't allowed to sit down. I made a rule that I'd, I'd have to stand up because you're going to sit in the chair for five hours. I'd do things like I remember on my second day of chemo, I wore my football gear. So I wore my all my Glenelg, my Glenelg playing kit with my football boots, bought a football in, 
and sat sat in the seat for five and a half hours just in footy gear. Um, yeah, I just try to make it as 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 positive as possible. This letter that you mentioned, uh, you you said you read it every day, and and that's nine weeks. That's you must have memorized it by now, have you? Oh, not off the top of my head. I've got it. I reckon I've got a copy here. Um, I mean, if you if you feel comfortable, I'd be really interested to hear it. Yeah, hold on. You know what? I've got it on my phone. Um, yeah, so I wrote this letter. Um, it said, to Rulla from Rulla. Um, there's one rule of this note to self slash new normal. Note to self slash new normal. Rulla called it this because one of his favourite bands is Horror Show. They're a Sydney hip-hop group and one of their albums is called New Normal. They've got a song called Note to Self and I know firsthand how much Rulla loves this song because I actually met Rulla at a horror show gig. Standing in the crowd, stage light on his face, unblinking, singing along every word. This is how his note to self went. To Rulla from Rulla. Each day you read this and inhale these words with a sincerity. You never ever take for granted the importance of these words and this guide. Today you fight. Today you grind slowly but quickly but surely. Pause. Listen to not only your body but your mind. Now absorb your surroundings. You hold the key to the door of solution. Forward is the only direction that will help you complete today. While optimism, persistence, positivity act as a sequence to follow. Follow them with clarity. Understand that today's opportunity is what matters most. Stay present. Once you achieve today, focus on the sleep that will give you the, yourself the best opportunity that you can do it all again tomorrow. See you in the morning. I wrote this one with the windows open to let in some fresh air or maybe I was half hoping I could fly away from it all, find a brighter day. Rollo would set himself missions for every day. I'd write one page laugh more times than one, talk to someone that will inspire you, um, eat healthy, understand, accept, and embrace the side effects of chemo. And then I had like just a couple of things to remember. There is the exact same number of seconds, minutes, and hours today as there were yesterday and will be tomorrow. If today feels slow, ride its way through until tomorrow arrives. Focus on what you can control, let go of what you cannot. Visualize these words and what they represent will improve your mental state. And uh, a peace in mind means a mind at peace. And that was what I read every day for nine weeks. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Obviously, it's inspired by their song Note to Self and um, and the album New Normal. And I think that's kind of just when New Normal dropped, maybe. So um, I remember I, I hit Horror Show up. Hit solo up. Solo as in kid solo, one half of horror show, the lyricist. Um, when I got diagnosed, because it, I think you gave me the encouragement to do it, actually. Um, you did, yeah, you did. I wasn't going to do it, and you said, no, he's a cool guy, like, you'll, you'll be right. So I sent him a, I sent him an inbox, and um, and sure enough, he wrote back, and, and I was actually blown away by how, um, like, sincere he was when we were talking, like, I'd imagine a lot of people would, would, would message him. But like it was they were long in-depth messages which would take a lot of time. Like and it was I was like blown away, like, no, this guy is generally everything that you know you, you would think he would be. Well yeah, we kept in contact and um sure enough, on on my last I'm getting a little bit emotional just thinking about this, but um on my last day of treatment, um <laughs> 
when I got the all clear, um, my last when I got my last day of treatment, um, he called me. <laughs> he called me. I never forget. Yeah, he he. Well, we face it was like an Instagram live FaceTime, but um, yeah, we um, yeah, I remember rushing home. I went and got a touch lottery ticket and um, sat myself up in my room. Waited anxious, you know, waited, waited anxiously, and sure enough, um, Kid Solo gave me a call and, and we chewed the fat for a little time. And um, yeah, man, I look back at that time. And yeah, that was, um, that was pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. How are you going with your cancer journey now? I mean, at the moment, it's all, it's all G, it's all good. Um, I just go back for regular checkups. I only have to go back once a year now. I had to go once we got the green light, um, which was a couple of months after finish tre- finishing treatment. I had to go uh, every couple of weeks getting some blood tests. But for now, it's once a year. I've actually got to go within the next week um, to do that. But it's all good. I have these side effects, which which will be with me forever. Um, so I guess I'm just learning to accept that. And uh, I've got these scars on my neck and some blotches on my body and uh, I can't do things what I once could physically, which has kind of halted my football career and things like that, which I've accepted, but it's it's taking a little bit of time here and there as well. Um, but short answer is two feet and a heartbeat, all good. I know it's hard to believe, but somehow throughout all of this, Rulla also managed to become a musician. He's a lyricist and an instrumentalist. I'd like to thank Uncle Archie and my sisters, Titters, Dan Sultan, Kev Comedy, paving the way for me and many. The stand up tall, young, black, and deadly. I'm proud and ready. I'm the black. And when I ask him where music was throughout his journey, he says it was there all along. Sitting right next to me. Um, it was forever right next to me. It was, I can't imagine. I felt like when I was born, music was born with me, like. For me, anyways, in my journey, people often ask, "When did music start for you?" I, I can't remember it not starting. It's kind of always been there, you know. Um, and and yeah, so I I think like what we we're talking about earlier. I think sports just kind of took a heads, and I, I just went on that little path. But the whole time, music has always been right there. Um, I probably just had a little bit of self doubt that I could ever do anything with it. Always had ambitions, but. Um, you know, I grew up in a really cool place of a world where um, folk music was was pumping um, and I learned guitar and um, was around a lot of live music and lo- like a lot of live folk. And when I was 12, I got this awesome opportunity to tour with Xavier Rudd. I, did, I, was, Aboriginal, I was doing Aboriginal dancing with him. Got to play some, or be on some big stages at Falls Festival in Pyramid Rock and Piranha and that's where I got the appetite for being for performing, being in front of big stages. So, and you recently released a song called Black Swan. Uh, why did you call it that? Because when I was working for Dad, I used to watch the Black Swans every day, and they're just they've got such this presence about them. Like they're not a very big animal, but they just have this huge presence. At the time when I was writing that song, it's a message about being able to stand up tall and say where you're from and proud. I just thought of a black swan. I just thought they're very much that, you know, like anytime you would feed the animals or feed feed the swans or all the birds, the ducks, when that black swan would come over, you know, they'd all just make way. Just made sense, you know. A black swan, black swan, stand up tall when you're singing because you're singing for me, my man. Black swan, 
black swan, black swan, a black swan, black swan. Stand up tall when you're singing, cause you're singing for me, my man.